It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hey everybody, welcome. It is Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird, and you are listening to A Public Affair on volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Now, we have... um, a story that we're going to be telling today. I'm really excited for our guest. I spent Thanksgiving break. Did you read a book over Thanksgiving break? I read a book over Thanksgiving break. It was an amazing book. The book is called The Story of Jane, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service. And it's written by Laura Kaplan, who was part of Jane. And she's joining us here today. Hello, Laura. Hello, Carousel. Happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for writing this fabulous book. And let me just tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, Laura Kaplan was a member of Jane, as we said, and a founding member of the Emma Goldman Women's Health Center in Chicago. After moving to rural Wisconsin, Richland Center, she attended home births as a lay midwife and established a shelter-based program for battered women. When she moved to the East Coast, she worked as an advocate for nursing home residents and was the managed care project director for Citizen Action of New York. She was on the board of National Women's Health Network and has been involved in a variety of community projects. Um, and she's an author of this fabulous book. Really, what, what I love about it is, you know, you didn't wait for someone else to tell the story of, the Jane, of Jane. You told the story of Jane. Kick us off a little bit. I mean, we're going to dive wonderfully deep, as the book does, but start with sort of the big picture preface. What is Jane? Okay. Before I say that, I have to say there is a reason why I decided to write the book. Okay. And that was because I didn't want someone from the outside to write this story because people looking in on us tend to see us in a way we don't see ourselves, yeah. you know, as courageous, heroic, whatever the adjectives are. I wanted uh, an insider to tell our story so we wouldn't be turned into Amazon warriors or something like that. Sorry I mean, about that. That's oh. my reminder that I had this interview. <laughs> hey, you have something to do today. Join us on the radio. Hooray. I'm um, doing it. I, I really appreciate that because I think that is what is so important and is woven throughout the book, not just the tremendous success of the work that you did. And, you know, it's sort of there. You say the numbers in the end of the book over four years, over um, 11,000 abortions performed over four years just in the city of Chicago. I mean, that's tremendous, tremendous success. And it is sort of a Herculean effort and success, but it's also committed by people that just cared about the issue and weren't quite sure what to do. And that's what's so inspiring about this is that the story really is the ins and outs, the tensions, the confusions, the frustrations, the success, the failures, all of that. And the the continuation of you wake up in the morning and you're like, well, that didn't work out. Let's try this instead. And really the determination and perseverance of people that wanted to make a difference. Yes. And I think... What's really key about it is that sense of you start out with what you can do right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we had, I look at the group and say, what do we have as commonalities? I would say uh, two things. One was we were a remarkably intelligent group of women. And the second is we were all people who wanted to do something concrete. We didn't want to have discussions We didn't want to do any of that. We just wanted to do something to make a difference. And, you know, we started out, we knew nothing. Excuse me. We could do nothing. And by the end of it, we knew a lot. 
and we could do everything. Yeah. And you but, were more than just abortion. You were women's empowerment in the end. I mean, from the start to the end. But the core of what you did was beyond abortion. But that's because we were really grounded in a political understanding of the issue. Not just that women were suffering, which they were, and we could alleviate that suffering in some way, but there was a political understanding of uh, women's role in society and women's rights um, that underlied everything we did. So now you want me to tell you the story? Well, I want to kick us off with just a little story that our listeners know. Jane was, there There was no one named Jane. Jane was a, a pseudonym, uh, a voice on the end of a phone that could help you find uh, an illegal abortion. Tell, tell us that Correct. in your words, okay? So I, I have to take you back a long time um, to the beginnings of the women's liberation movement in the late 60s. And it was at that point that women really started talking to each other about the issues that pertain to women. And of course, one of them was abortion. Um, And I got to say that for most of us, I think we thought before this that every once in a while a woman had an illegal abortion and she died from it. And we'd all seen the pictures of the crumpled bodies in the alleyways. But when women started talking to each other, what they discovered is lots of women wanted abortions and lots of women found them. And maybe they weren't the best experience and maybe they were kind of sordid and icky, but they were alive afterwards and talking about it. And so women all over the country decided to organize um services where they would suss out the underground system in their particular city or area of the country, try to determine who were the most competent practitioners, and then help women find their way to these people who were all men, or mostly men, and raise money because illegal abortions were very, very expensive, $500 or more. Um, And that was in a time since we were based in Chicago. I'll give you a Chicago, what I always say, that you could find a decent one-bedroom apartment for about $125 a month. So $500 was a lot of of money. And lots, lots of women could not afford that. So part of our job in the early days was to raise money to help pay for women's abortions. And currently, there are abortion funds throughout the country who are doing exactly what we started out doing. So you, once again, I'm going to repeat this a million times. You always start from what the need is and what you're currently, what you currently can do about it. But... Um, Go ahead. I, I mean, I want to talk about also the aspect of there on some level, the the bottom line was trying to pro- provide abortions for women. But really what you make it so clear in this book, the bottom line was empowering women. Finding abortions for them was just the start of it. And I want to sort of talk about that, how that was always it feel like feels like that was always the core of the motivation because it wasn't, as you say, just about, okay, great, we can help you find a place to have an illegal abortion. Um, It was, well, how are you going to pay for it? Well, it was the people, okay, we connected you to this person. Is it safe? Will they, you know, kill you? Will they ask you to perform sexual favors? Will you survive? What happens afterwards? How are you treated? How are you acknowledged, you know, of the pain that you're feeling? Um, who's talking to you about the, the challenges of it? All these different pieces where it wasn't just and maybe it started initially as let me cl- connect A to B but acknowledging all of these different pieces that had to happen to get us there with this underlying level of How do we empower women and focus on women taking control of the choices in their life? Exactly. And, you know, we were um, 
the group was organized by a woman who I call Claire. Her real name is Heather Booth, and I can say that now because she's very public, who is a long, lifelong organizer. And um, she was uh, part of Freedom Summer, Mississippi Summer. And when she came back, she was a student at the University of Chicago. And when she came back, she got a couple of phone calls from very different kinds of people looking for illegal abortions. And as she tells it, she didn't know anything about abortion, but she reached out through her civil rights contacts and found a black doctor on the south side of Chicago, T.R. Howard, who was regularly performing abortions at his clinic. <clears throat> and so those first women she sent to his to T.R. Howard. Um, there were times when he had to stop responding because of threats from um, police. And so she had to find other people. And at some point she decided, and then <clears throat> again, I have to take you back to a, another time. Um, so in the late sixties, um, there was a lot of activity, political activity, and you being in Madison, you know full well, because Madison was a hub, as was Chicago. Yes. Um, a, a confluence of various movements, which we sort of uh, put on the under the umbrella of the movement. So that was civil rights, anti-war, student movement, and just the very beginnings of the women's movement. So there would be these new left conferences and Heather was always at them. And there would be one workshop on women's issues, which she led. And she would pass around yellow legal sheets, uh, pads uh, with different headings like equal pay, childcare, and one always said abortion. So at some point, uh, so she became known as the person to contact if you were looking for an illegal abortion. And at some point, it just got too much for her. And I think she really wanted to do other kinds of organizing. Um, she wasn't, she was married. I think she was starting graduate school. Um, she was about to be pregnant. Um, so she decided to organize this group. And she called the women who had signed those yellow legal pads so I'm just for anybody who's listening, if the yellow legal pads come around, put your name on it. <laughs> and, um, and she got this group together and she trained them. And she came through her, at that point, four years of helping women find illegal abortions. She had a pretty sophisticated political sense of how this fit into women's role in society. And she was uh, part of the first women's liberation group, the West Side group in Chicago. And so she imbued this group with the political understanding that this ju wasn't just about abortion. It was really about women having control over their destinies and women being able to fully participate in society. And so that underscored everything she did. And in fact, um, I should have it out, but I don't. Uh, before she would turn off over any of the contact names of the doctors, um, she had this group write a pamphlet called uh, A Woman's Abortion, A Woman's Right, A Woman's Decision. And it, in that, it describes the abortion, what to look out for, and all those things. But it also places that in the context of women's roles in society and the things that we were up against and are still, quite frankly, up against. Yes, yes. Well, and I like that so much of uh, in, in the beginning of the book when it talks about this formation of the uniqueness of this new group that was created and that it wasn't sort of the side conversation of the of, of the civil rights movement where people were like oh women's rights issues we're not quite sure that that's really our focus but here it was um a, a 
women getting together without the male hierarchy. Talk to me about the group that formed and particularly as I'm reading this, perhaps, you know, you read it with the modern eyes and you feel the sense of naivete. Like, how can you, you're about to commit a crime. You're about to talk to all these people that are committing a crime. And there's this level of hesitation and yet trust huge level of trust that that forms because of these women all getting together and just trusting each other. Talk to me about that. Um, I don't know if it was naivety so much as the incredible excitement Mm -hmm. that women talking to each other and figuring out how to address women's issues that had been ignored by the rest of society um, because we're women and we understand this. Right. Um, so there was a, a huge amount of trust and this was throughout our four years. Um, we were always in this sort of on the seesaw of wanting to protect ourselves and wanting to make ourselves available, you know? So how much are we going to expose what we're doing? But we would say to the women who contacted us, um, we're not doing this to you, but with you. you and know, you're, and you're part of it. Right, right. You're a partner in this. You're a partner in crime. And we rely on you to protect us as much as you are relying on us to protect you. And there's this element in the book, uh, it gets weaved in once in a while about this, the sort of reminding everyone that what you're doing is illegal and that there's this, you know, you don't trust the police, you don't trust the mafia, but on some level, the police and the mafia trusted you. Like they sent their wives and their, you know, daughters and whoever to you when they, when someone that they knew needed help Oh, call Jane. And and there was sort of once in a while, there's a reference in the book near the end. They talk about, oh, oh, you want that? You go to Bubba Buzz in the back alley. That's that's where her the back door is to her apartment. There was this level of you had to be, you know, working with them on some level, even though you completely didn't trust them. We weren't working with them at all, Mm. but we had women who worked for the Chicago police come to us. We had police officers sending their wives, their daughters, their girlfriends to us. We had doctors sending their patients to us. And that was always an interesting one because uh, when we got a bunch of referrals from one doctor, one of us would call the doctor and say, this is Jane, we've noticed you're referring a number of women to us and we'd like to talk to you about how you could maybe help us. And the usual response was don't ever call me again. Right. You know, but there were doctors who did provide um, support of various kinds to us during this time. So we didn't work and mafia. I don't know nothing about the mafia. <laughs> you know, uh, it, we didn't pay anybody off. We never paid anybody off. And um, I don't think we didn't have any, you know, we sort of, it's kind of like we set up our own reality. Mm -hmm. And it was separate from the other reality, you know. And so we didn't really have much to do with the other reality. And we were creating our own world the way we wanted it to be and laura it seems like on some level you took advantage of the fact that this was underground maybe not consciously but you didn't have to worry about oh are we following the rules are we right if it if it was a legal abortion there'd be all these procedures and all these medical requirements and and forms and all these things you can just imagine that happens when with a um you know certification and government you know review of everything but because you were illegal there was no one to tell you 
you can't do this or no one to you you weren't the doctors that were afraid and had to be hushed you you didn't have your medical license on the line that that's not what this is about talk to me about sort of the the freedom the the frustration that it was illegal but that you filled this hole and found the ability to fill it the way you wanted to fill it jane could make their own decisions right right i think that was really key and we're sort of jumping ahead in the story so Maybe as a little background, I yes. should bring us up to the period we're talking about. Fantastic. So that initial group, which wound up being about five women, and all of them except Eleanor, who's in the documentary, um, are dead now. She's the only one who's still alive uh, from that very original group. Um, but And they divided up the work, like... Um, Jody and Ruth took on doctor contacts, which turned out to be the most powerful position in the group. And the group, at, as it was in the beginning, decided pretty early on that it wasn't much to say to a woman, oh, we've sent other women, then they all come back alive. That wasn't good enough. That in order to give women control over the experience of abortion, this group had to take control. And so they looked for somebody, one of the doctors that they could get some leverage over and get some control over. And they found one uh, who they thought was really good and he was willing to bargain. So they started negotiating. See, why are they reminding me that I have this when it's already <laughs> happening? Got that off. Anyway, um, so, um, and, you know, they started out with, well, we'll guarantee you so many cases a week, which was the language, uh, in exchange for lowering the price and occasionally doing one for free. Um, and then they had to find those so many cases a week, which they weren't getting. Um, so they advertised in underground newspapers and they put up flyers in dorm rooms and phone booths. I don't know if anybody remembers phone booths, but. And it would say need abortion, call Jane. And here's the number. It would say pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane. Gotcha. With our phone number. And Eleanor, the phone was at her apartment. So she was the person who had the contact with the women. Um, and over time, they were able to gain more and more control over this man to the point where they were sitting in on abortions and holding women's hands and setting up the workplaces. Previously, he had worked in motel rooms where he would have a woman go in and get a room. And then his nurse, and I put that in quotes, um, turned uh, out to be his, his, his brother's girlfriend, his brother's wife. What was it? Brother's girlfriend, right, I think. Right. Uh, he doesn't remember because the filmmakers got in touch with me at one point and said, uh, Mike wants to know who was the nurse. And I had to say, you know, was your brother's girlfriend? <laughs> because he had told me that when I when I interviewed him, which was about I did my interviews about 15 years uh, after we folded. OK, so um Anyway, so they were able to really get in on what was going on and see everything that was going on. And I think at some point, either out of his own pride, that was probably part of it. And the other part of it was his closeness with Jody. Um, he was at this point living in California and flying in on weekends and staying with Jody and her family. She was married with two children um, and doing abortions for us um, over the weekend in a two-day period. Um, and also, I think, because she was on his case constantly, telling him stories about women's lives and the women we counseled and the suffering and the difficulties they were up against and their lack of resources and options and all of that. And he, you know, I say this in the book, 
I quote him saying to me, well, he thought abortions were like mink coats. You know, lots of women wanted them, but only some could afford them. Right. Uh, so he wasn't used to thinking about it in this political way. And in fact, he to the, probably to this day would say to you, I'm not a political person. Right, right. And m- most of the men in the book, a, a few of the husbands uh, are empathetic, and the men aren't featured much in the book, except particularly uh, this Dr. Mike, who's named Nick in the book. Um, but so anyway. Their disconnection, yes. They see it as a business. He saw it as a business, yes. He was, he, he was in it to make money. Yeah, right. That's who he was. Right. And that's and of course we weren't interested in money. We were and and Jody in the first negotiation session says to him, "You're in it for money. You want to make money. We don't care about money. We want to help women. That's what we're in it for." So I think at some point he probably thought, "Gee, this is not going to be." He he said to me the first time I agreed to do an abortion for free, I knew the jig was up. <laughs> so I think. He he thought, well, if I train them, because by then he was sort of into this different way of looking at things and thought it was pretty cool. Uh, if I train them, then they can take it over and I'll find some other way to make money, which he did. Um, and so he really, you know, there's this illusion that Jody wanted to learn. She did not. The first time he handed her an instrument and said, see what this feels like. She was like, I don't want to touch anything. You know, yuck, I'm not doing this. But he talked her into it. And once she started doing the abortions, you know, it's like going through the looking glass. Now you've violated all these rules of society. You're not allowed to do this. And you're on the other side. You're in Oz now. Everything's in technicolor. It's all different. Well, and so, you know, I'm sort of winding my way back to your question, which I've kind of forgotten by now. (laughs) No problem. I, I think that moment, and then there was a point at which, And she never admitted this to me, but I think this was the truth, that she understood that for the group to be able to accept that she, and by extension, we could do abortions ourselves, they first had to accept the fact that Mike was not, in fact, a doctor. Yes. And and I mean... I want to remind everyone, we're li- talking right now with Laura Kaplan. She's the author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion services, and she was a member of Jane herself. Um, we'd love to have your questions or comments. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Mary Jo is out uh, ready to answer the calls. We have jade and uh, megan in the studio so feel free to give us a call you can join us on the air or you can pass a message through to them we'd love to hear your thoughts area code 608-256-2001 extension 9 so laura you sort of just touched on the mic drop right if there is a mic drop in this book which i feel like there's a couple but one of the mic drops is this moment where people realize holy moly the person that's performing most of our abortions is not a doctor. Mike right. is not a doctor. And yet it gets, if you if you flip it on its head, it's this moment of fear where you can see that member, well, you'll talk to us about how that impacted the members of Jane. Some left and said, this has crossed a line. I can't, I can't cross. And yet for all the other women that stayed and crossed the line, it opened up this whole world of, well, if he can do it and he's not a doctor... Why can't I do it? I'm not a doctor. And all of a sudden, everything opened up. Right, exactly. And that's what happened. You know, the meeting, it was before my time, uh, so I wasn't there. But what I've been told is when Jody told the group that Mike was not a doctor, people flipped out. Mm -hmm. They started crying and, you know, we're just like the back alleys. We got a fold and... 
Um, they felt like they were perhaps some women felt like perhaps you were misleading the women that you had been providing abortion services for. We we were. Mm-hmm. You know, if you thought he was a doctor, then you were telling the women you counseled. He's a doctor. So we were lying to women, but we didn't know we were lying to women. So that was the other part of it. We've been lying to women, you know, we're just as bad as the most corrupt. And, 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 and Jody really, you know, stepped up and said, now, who did you think would work this closely with us? Did you really think a doctor would work this closely with us? Mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, a year and a half experience with this man. And all our reports from the gynecologist for both post-abortion checkups have been just terrific, you know, so we know he's doing a good job. And um, so a lot of people left the group, but the people who stayed exactly, there was then they had made that leap. If he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we can do it too. And I think that was the moment Jody was waiting for, for people to make that connection. So then she could say, and I'm learning to do abortions. Yeah. And I'm going to train others. And Laura, I want to read, um, there's so many great passages in this book worth reading, but there's one in particular that I felt like was part of this Eureka movement where you talk about um, the character named Deborah. I don't know her real life name, but Deborah was watching the abortion. And I want to read um, uh, a couple, uh, just a little, little section from that, if I may, and sort of break down of... Um, how all of a sudden it wasn't just about abortion and it wasn't just about women's empowerment, but then it added this level of demystifying the sort of medical procedure and the medical elite that is the practice of medicine in America and perhaps across the world. All right, I'm going to read a short passage from the story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Deborah was fascinated. Quote, I was blown away by the blood. I'd never seen such a thing before. There was blood on the woman's thighs, blood on Nick's wrist, on the bed. It was dealt with in a certain normal, everyday way, like he were cleaning up the kitchen, matter of fact. He could have been a bricklayer. He could have been doing any other seriously learned craft that was messy. It was the work-like quality of the action which impressed me. I mean, this business of the hands and the blood and the mucus and the Kleenex stuffed under her butt to absorb it. It seemed very business-like relationship between the abortionist and the woman having the abortion. Here was this half-naked woman laughing, talking, occasionally asking questions, definitely relating to this person who is working on her body. It Instantly, Deborah understood that the drapes, the uniforms, the barriers and of that the medical profession erected between patient and practitioner were not a function of either the woman's needs or the needs of the situation, but was their ap- appearances and status like a general's gold braid. It reminded her of the scene from the wizard of Oz when the wizard is revealed, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. There was nothing magic about an abortion. The techniques were very straightforward, just like counseling. There were skills that with practice and care, Deborah could learn and any of them could learn. The realization translated to medicine in general. Doctors weren't all powerful Oz demanding unquestionable obedience. Doctors were craftsmen and their skill appreciated and respected. Once the women in the service had stripped away the medical profession's mystique and taboo, they could relate to the technical skills that they were learning, not only useful, but in, infinitely interesting. I, I, that, for me, was like the eureka moment where all of a sudden you realize this medical profession and the way that they've presented themselves to, to make women afraid and obedient and respectful all of a sudden changed. Talk to me about that. Well, I think most of us experience um, that our interactions with the medical profession tend to be ones where we are required to give up our power. The doctor is the expert. Mm -hmm. And and there's there's a medical model. And I think anyone who goes into medicine gets a little brainwashed Uh, with the intensity of medical training uh, to follow that medical model with the drapes, 
so that you're not really working on a person. You're working on this, this piece mm-hmm. um, that are, you know, I say they're unnecessary, but are they? Because there is the, the I think there's a distancing that happens that is preservative. Um, does that make sense? Am I using that word correctly? I don't even know. It doesn't matter. Um, it does make sense. Yeah. And that when you take that away and collapse the distance between the person getting the service and the person providing it. So I'm not going to use practitioner and patient because I, I think patient is a very objectifying term. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole intention. Um so that you can, as the practitioner, uh, sort of keep your emotional distance. And there is a price to be paid when you choose not to do that. And I think what happened to Jody is instructive of that, where she just got to a point where um, she said to me, every time I close my eyes, I see this unending line of women in pain and I am the instrument of their pain, and I just can't do it anymore. I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I think that's interesting that you touch on that, and and um, we can definitely talk about that. At the end, so many of the women crossing that line made the procedure more right. You were non-objectifying and uh, human, the connection, and yet there was a little bit of a respect for the fact that. You know, when you cross that line, it's this overwhelming connection where you you carry with them and and you you take on their burden with you and and it, talk to us about that. Um, trying to think of, <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful and it's heartening and it's loving and. Um, it's a different way of providing a service. Um, But it's got its cost, as I said. Um, The woman I call Julia in the book, Martha Scott, talks, told me about how she, and she became, when Jody was out, you know, of the group, then Martha became, Martha and, and Ruth, who I call Miriam in the book, became the strong center of the group. And Martha said she'd never had cavities before this, and suddenly she was getting cavities. So there, there's a cost. So I think we yeah. talked about this. Um, but one thing that crossing that line did for all of us was we got a really, a really bird's eye view. Is that the right term? I'm not sure. We had a view of how power works in the world. And we did what we could to equalize power for the women who came through the service, which is how we referred to ourselves internally as the service. And um, so one thing we did, once it was all us, so there would be a woman who was called the assistant, who was actually our training was an apprenticeship. So you started with the first step of an abortion and you did that until you were comfortable and then you moved to the second step. And again, when you were comfortable, you moved to the next step. And so the assistant would be doing the beginning stages of the abortion, you know, Mm -hmm. a shot of perpetrate, inserting the speculum, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, the person who was actually going to be doing the abortion would sit with the woman, sorry, Hmm. um, and um, hold her hand and talk with her. And then at some point, depending on where in the training process the assistant was, the two women would switch positions. So without words, we were trying to convey this sense that these positions are all equal. Now the person who was between your legs is gonna be sitting and holding your hand and talking to you. And the other person is gonna be between your legs doing the rest of the abortion. So we really tried to give that message. And also to women that 
many of the women in the group had had abortions with Jane. So we would say to women, you know, after this, you could join us. You can be part of this too. Yeah. And start out as a counselor like we all started out and we continued. Counseling was really the bedrock of the group. So everybody counseled. Well, and I think that's part of it that I wanted to ask you about was the fact that this was a positive medical experience. There, There is another section in the book, which I won't read from, but it's it, this short little paragraph about um, one person named Molly who said it was the best medical experience she ever had. And the thought right there, just stop for a second. We're talking about abortion. We're talking about something that's personal, that, you know, is invasive, is, you know, you know something that women, no matter where they are on this, on the issue have had a moment to think about it. They have to affirmatively pay for it. They have to take time off from work. There's pain involved. There's all these processes to it. And here she is saying this was, you know, it, it was almost life affirming for so many of the women because it was, oh, you know, taking care of my body can be a, a joyous moment of here I am taking care of my body. Here I am taking care of my needs here i am you know having a positive conversation and learning things from people i'm interacting with that just turned the whole medical procedure on its head talk to us about that well and 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 you should know that molly whose real name is eileen um was a nurse when i interviewed her and has been a nurse until she retired last year okay And she still says it was the best medical uh, experience she's ever had. And she was blindfolded because our guy required blindfolds. Mike required that the women be blindfolded. So she was blindfolded in an apartment in some strange part of the city she'd never been in before. And it was... She still says 50 years, more than 50 years after, best medical experience I've ever had. So um, because it was about her as a decision maker, it was we validated her ability and her right to make decisions about her own life. And we underscored those as decisions. You are deciding my life is going to be this way, not this way. And you're right. It was very life affirming. You're not the only one who has said that. And it was our intention to give this back to women. So, Laura, I want to talk about um, something that, that is also constant and weaved into the book that we haven't quite touched on yet. And it was the the juxtaposition of uh, privilege and, you know, the need to sort of fight the power that it was, at least at the start, you know, women that were not getting access to the medical care and treatment that we need. We're ta- That's what the whole reason we're talking today. But also, especially at the start, it was um, comfortable middle class, uh, educated white women. And there's a lot in the book that talks about you know, racism in society and, and how did that play out and and how the dynamics changed when you realized a lot of the abortions you were performing were for people that couldn't fly to New York when abortion became legal or couldn't fly somewhere else and um, had so many other challenges. Well, I want to say from the very beginning, um, the members of the group were not exclusively white, but primarily white, Okay. not exclusively middle class, but primarily middle class. And the women who came to us from the very beginning were from all, all ages, all races, all economic statuses, the women who called us. The real turning point was when New York legalized abortions and uh, for $300, including, including airfare, You could get on a plane at O'Hare, fly to New York, get an abortion and fly back. It was it it was a a bargaining point with Mike as well, because how could you charge more than that if women can fly to New York? But it changed the women who needed us, Um, became more and more women of color, poor women of color, young women, teenagers, women who were in. Uh, such difficult straits 
with controlling abusive partners that they couldn't possibly leave town even for a day. So people in the most need and the most dire circumstances were the women who wound up calling Jane after that summer of 1970. Um, so we talked a lot about that because it wasn't, we didn't go into it saying, oh, we just want to serve poor women. Um, or we just want to serve teenagers, you know, or whatever. We just, whoever needs us, we're here. And we were, the group then was based in Hyde Park, which is not an all-white neighborhood, even though the University of Chicago was there and never has been, um, as far as I know, anyway. Um, but there was a real change. So that's when, you know, we started doing pap smears. We learned how to do pelvic exams from a friendly doctor um, because we were seeing more and more women who had no medical care whatsoever. Right. And we did a lot of education. So in December of 1970, when the first Our Bodies, Ourselves came out, and it's, I have my original copy, this thick newsprint. If you And everyone, if you haven't read that book, it still exists and it's still an incredibly important book to, for every, every woman, perhaps every person to read. Yes. Yeah. And um, we got thousands of copies and we gave them to every woman we counseled, along with the birth control handbook from Montreal. And later we got the VD handbook from Montreal because we felt like if you didn't know, you know, knowledge right. is power. Right, right. So, so people really needed to understand how their bodies worked. Well, and I love that that's how Jane kept <clears throat> kept evolving and, and doing all these things. And, um, Laura, we only have, you know, a, a, few, a few more minutes. I wanted to talk with you about, okay, so this amazing conversation that we're having. And, again, I'll remind everyone, the book is called The Story of Jane, The Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service by Laura Kaplan. And we're talking right now with Laura Kaplan. Um, talk to us about, you know, what the... You know, we can't understand the post-row world without understanding the history of the pre-row world. And things have changed, but things are the same as well. It, it feels, you know, th- how, what are your thoughts as someone that was so active uh, in the pre-row world? We have the Internet. We have, you know, medications that are accessible. And yet we still have power dynamics and education dynamics and and um, so much more. What are your thoughts about the world today in the U.S.? Well, first of all, power dynamics are everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, and that was true. We didn't talk about the 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 not such nice things about Jane, mm-hmm. um, where we weren't perfect. And, you know, um, so there were power dynamics within the group as well. Yes. Um. And, you know, you try hard to mitigate some of that stuff, but, you know, this is, I don't know if it's human nature or the nature of working with others, but they, their little, little muddy feet creep right in, you know? <laughs> so, um, I, medical abortion has made a, a, an enormous dis, a difference. Um, Surgery is dicey. I mean, we were very, very lucky. Uh, Somebody could have gotten really hurt or killed, and that didn't happen. Um, But medical abortion is a much easier road to hoe, so to speak, for all of those people who are thinking about or looking at ways of violating um, restrictive statutes in their states i don't know quite what there's there's no abortion here in wisconsin abortion is illegal right now in wisconsin it is being litigated but we're fighting over uh, a law from the 1800s that existed pre-row right right and you know who was responsible for passing those anti-abortion laws uh men i i don't know the american medical association ah hmm in the mid uh, 1800s. It was a way of consolidating their own power. And once again, you know, I always, uh, these days I'm always thinking of Barbara Kruger's famous 
graphic our bodies are a battleground and they have always been women's bodies have always been a battleground so here we are again i do not think that dobbs will stand and i think one of the reason roe was decided the way it was is because so many people were violating the law and we supposedly have a country that runs by the rule of law and you can't have a country that runs by the rule of law when you have people violating the law left and right and clergy speaking up yeah something we didn't even cover in the book but how different though the clergy was then than it feels like the clergy is now they were that's, on your side no you don't think that's accurate i i don't think the clergy is that different mm. it's just who the press decides to give voice to mm. i think that's valid that's... you know there are lots of clergymen and women who are staunch supporters of women's uh, women's uh, rights and women's right to control their own destiny. Uh, it's just we don't hear from them and they're not organized the way that Howard Moody at Judson Memorial Church in New York City organized the clergy back the year before Jane started in 68. Yeah. So, um, and yes, no, 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 I was still listening. Oh. And we have Laura, we have about a minute left. So, what are your sort of final thoughts on you know, what do you want to leave people with when they have an opportunity to read your book and learn about the great work that happened, um, with the ordinary but fabulous women of Jane? Um, this real societal change happens when ordinary people get together to solve a problem. And as I said in the beginning, and I'm going to stay, say it again as a final, you start with what you can do today and what you know today that will alleviate suffering. And you move from there and you never know where it's going to lead you. None of us expected to do what we wound up doing. And yet we did. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you. Again, Laura Kaplan, author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura, and for sharing this story with everyone so that we know what really happened. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking with you. And a huge thank you also to um, Shali, our news director, Jade, our news producer, Megan, our engineer, Mary Jo for staffing the phones. It's been great talking with everyone. We will be back again next week. Reminder, you are listening to WRT 89.9 FM Madison. See you soon, everyone. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never before. We bring the sound.